Welcome to The Investigation. I'm your host, Senior Executive Producer Chris Blasto, and joined here with Senior Editorial Producer John Santucci. We're going to do something a little different today. With the discussion of impeachment and Mueller's testimony kind of in a holding pattern, we thought we'd look at all the other investigations that are out there, from New York to Washington to uh, court battles in the Supreme Court. So we are going to our cast of experts here at ABC News to break it all down. Uh, Outside of the Mueller report are what things we should be looking at. And first up is congressional reporter Trish Turner. So Trish, the only witness we have seen on Capitol Hill involving the investigation is really Michael Cohen. What's going on? You know, it's it's a quiet time because it seems like once the president decided on a strategy of we're going to ignore or refuse all of the subpoenas, then we knew we were, right then we were headed to court. It's just a matter of how long. Of course, we've already found ourselves at court once already uh, with regard to the House Oversight Committee's request for financial records. They're trying to look in, you know, conflicts of interest and all kinds of things uh, in the Trump empire and and immigration. There's just a number of things they're looking at. But this found us in court or we found ourselves in court um, over this request for Trump's financial records. This is, you know, how did they prepare his tax um, records, his returns? Uh, This is subpoena went to his longtime accountants. And essentially, the Trump lawyers said, no, thanks, we're not doing this. And they seem to be uh, they seem to be settling on a theory that in order for Congress to investigate, they must state a legitimate legislative purpose. And so we heard that a lot in court. We've heard it from not only the lawyer at the White House, Trump's legal team, um, Trump organization. They're all coming back to this single argument and saying they just don't have it. So now, if you, though, Trish, are looking with your team, I mean, we're we're obviously dealing with the House, we're dealing with the Senate. Um, the House, though, you know, they're not just doing the financial battles with right. the president. Um, they're looking into so many different requests with this White House. Um, the one that really stands out to me, and I'm curious if, where you think the big one is here. I mean, you, you hear so many people talking about what happened uh, with security clearances. I mean, right. obviously, it's not something that came up in Robert Mueller's investigation, but it does just show how wide uh, ranging these committees are going to go into this administration. Right. There's enormous dragnet. And so it basically comes down to there's policy that they are questioning as, you know, as members of Congress. We've seen this. I've been covering Congress for a long time. And you see this with every administration. Doesn't matter who controls Congress, who sits in the White House. There is legitimate oversight um, investigation that takes place by members of Congress. So there's that. And then there's the effort by the Democrats who now control Congress to look into what's going on at the Trump empire. What's going on at the White House? You know, is he, you know, is he double dealing? Is he self-dealing? And so all of these have gotten inflated. And the president essentially looks at all of it and says, wait a minute, I'm not going to go. I don't have to be beholden to a party. I'm not going to testify to a party. And any of these requests, I'm just going to lump them all into one big bag and say, we're just talking about the campaign here. Yeah, but Trish, what is, I know everyone wants to see the tax returns. And and now this battle will be with uh, Steve Mnuchin that he could be actually held in contempt if he doesn't turn them over. But what is the legislative purpose 
So that's a good question. So we listened to the judge in this case of the financial records and and so I would make two points here. So the first being, you know, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee who made that request for the returns, he said, look, we we want to make sure the presidents, all presidents, are being audited. We don't know about this one because unlike presidents going back to Nixon, he didn't release his return, so we don't know. In court, the House uh, chief counsel said, wait a minute, Judge, we also want to know, you know, we could be looking at what if he started to do something in the empire, you know, in his businesses? that sort of bleeds out into what's going on now, how are we going to be able to trace that and find its origins in order to get to where we are now? So that's a, but that's a purpose. So, But then you had the letter, and the judge seemed to agree. He actually initiated this conversation that precedent shows that Congress doesn't have to point to legislation in order to investigate. In fact, the judge said, Weren't we looking at Whitewater? Weren't we looking at Watergate? You know, he and and our own John Cohen, who used to be an investigator on the Judiciary Committee in the House, said he agreed. He said, wait a minute. We also had Congress looked at steroids in sports. He, they looked at a, an explosion of a space shuttle, you know, years back. And, and that is also another duty of Congress. And they don't have to point to legislation for it to be legitimate. And let me ask you one more question, though. If they hold Steve Mnuchin in contempt. I mean, will they send him to jail or mm-hmm. or or and also I think it's like a $50,000 fine and is that right. personal money day after day? Yeah, so this is what we're trying to get to the bottom of is um so we really think the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, Richie Neal, he is kind of a moderate. He is not going at the jugular here. We think he's going to go to court. And actually, Steve Mnuchin told us on Friday, he thinks he's going to court over this battle. So we're not looking at a contempt battle. But what you're getting at Mm -hmm. is this conversation that, you know, Democrats looked years, decades and decades back um, in some instances a century and said, hey, wait a minute, we have this power. We can send the sergeant at arms out to jail people. We can find them. And they've, you know, pretty much laughingly dismissed that idea, but it still is hanging out there as a possibility. And then they've said, wait a minute, we could also find them Mm -hmm. daily. And this is going to point to problems if they want to try to do that. And I should say leadership in the Democratic side is really wary of this. They're saying this is not an option. We're going to use the courts the way we should. But you have had two members of these committees. That's say right. It, right. You had the chairman yeah. of House Oversight, Elijah Cummings, yeah. throw it out there. It's and you had deal. the chairman of House Intel, Adam Schiff, right. say it. Right. And these are so this is the battle that's going on. Are we fighting a political battle? How much do we really want to go after them, you know, and, and do something like this? And could it blow back on us? Could the people, you know, could the American people say, wait a minute, you really are pr- harassing the president. And maybe this wouldn't play for us well in 2020. So the dynamics are fascinating as we're on top of a major presidential election. And the House, you know, Democrats want to hold on to the House and they want to take the Senate high lift, but they want to. And so they don't want to be punished if they're looked as they're looked at as harassing the president. And they also don't want to ignite the president's base because they'll they'll in turn want to defend him. And Trish, before we let you go, I mean, we, we know that for June, 
one of the big uh, hearings that we'll have and behind closed doors. Uh, the president's uh, eldest son, Donald Trump Jr., is going to be coming right. in for another hearing. That's on the Senate side. Do we expect any big blockbuster hearings coming from the House? It doesn't seem uh, like Robert Mueller's returning their calls. <laughs> so you're talking about, and that was a Republican-led right. uh, committee that went after Don Jr., so we'll see where that goes. I don't expect any major fireworks there, at least not yet. The the two things that we're watching, um, we're looking for whether Robert Mueller will show up at House Judiciary, right? And so there's conversation going on behind the scenes. But we're also, I think it's fascinating, when you're talking about people who are not like Don McGahn, former White House counsel. These are people who are in the they're back in the personal sector. You know, they're in the private sector now. They have a they have careers to defend. They have, you know, they have, you know, their own, you know, sort of status to protect. And they're very much in legal jeopardy. So whether or not they will comply and what actually happens to them, I think that part will be fascinating. And as early as tomorrow, we're going to see whether Don McGahn actually shows up at the House Judiciary Committee to testify or plead the fifth. All right. Well, thank you very much, Trish. Thanks, guys. All right, Trish, thank you. And with the White House refusing to play ball with Congress, blocking witness interviews and document requests, as Trish just said, this could end up at the top of our third branch of the government, and that is the Supreme Court. And that's where we find ABC's Terry Moran. He covers the court for us. And Terry, this battle between the White House and Capitol Hill, if it ends up at the Supreme Court, it'd be historic. It will be historic. I think we are likely to get a redefinition of that nebulous division of power between the executive branch, the president, and Congress. It has been a struggle throughout our history. Sometimes Congress is more powerful. Sometimes the president is more powerful. And sometimes, rarely, the Supreme Court has to step in. They don't like it. They don't like being the referee between two co-equal branches of government. But this looks like a collision ahead that they will not be able to avoid in one of several cases. But but Terry, let me ask you this this rule that, the you know, especially in terms of the Mueller investigation, that a president can't be indicted. It's not it's not written. I mean, it's just a guideline, right? That's correct. I mean, the, one of the things that we're learning as Donald Trump kind of pushes the envelope of presidential powers here and the investigation into him has such high stakes, is that there's law, black letter law. And then there are these customs and traditions and ways of doing things that operate really as the grease and the gears that keep the government going, that no one actually wrote down. There is no law that says the president can't be indicted. But since Thomas Jefferson who was first kind of uh, held under subpoena, there has been a discussion of how much can a president be placed under the authority of the courts, either as a a witness in a criminal trial, either, either as somebody like Richard Nixon who had to produce evidence in a criminal trial, or as the subject of a criminal investigation himself, like Bill Clinton and Donald Trump. And the over 200 years now, the informal answer has been that would be impossible. It would wreck the way the American government works for the president, as Jefferson's lawyer said, to be hailed from pillar to post by the courts, to be hauled into the courtroom you know, all the time. To, he has got a constitutional right to be in court if he's on trial. And so because the president is uniquely the sole executive, the custom has been 
he can't be dragged into court. And I think that will hold with President Trump. So, Terry, the battle right now, I mean, as Trish was talking about, um, you have both sides on the battle of tax returns saying they believe they're going to court. Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, has said it. Uh, The House Ways and Means Chairman has said it. Even when we talk to the president's lawyers, they tell us, yeah, you know, we're probably gearing up for that, too. Is that the best battle, though, right now? Is that the one they should put all their eggs in that basket? Is there something that they could have more of a legislative purpose that could be a better module for them to actually go and try to get the president? That's the goal of Democrats on Capitol Hill? Uh, There are other kinds of subpoenas. The the accountant, uh, the Trump Organization's accountant, uh, uh, Mazar USA, I think it's called, Mm -hmm. Deutsche Bank. Uh, These are potential conflicts of interest that the president of the United States has. And over the years, the Supreme Court again and again has, Congress has sweeping powers to investigate uh, in order to make sure the government runs well. And I think they probably have a stronger case on some of those than on trying to get his tax returns. I I think we're going to see a series of these battles. And I think the court is going to pick the one that draws the conflict most precisely to lay down a rule. And Terry, what about this idea that's been circulating around this arcane idea of inherent contempt, that the sergeant of arms can go like throw these people in in a jail underneath the Capitol for not cooperating? Do you think that's at all possible? I, mean, I sure I sure hope not, Chris, because that's I mean, you, you know, it isn't Game of Thrones to, to talk about the the show of the day right now. We don't want our government to descend into uh, rival politicians being jailed in a crypt. You know, we, we really don't want that. Although the sergeant of arms does have law enforcement powers on behalf of the Congress, which is a co-equal branch of government. That said, once again, we've had these ways of doing things over the years. Good presidents, good members of Congress, good judges avoid the necessity of pushing a power to the absolute limit. Now, we have a president who's entirely willing to do that. And so we may end up in situations with with uh, rulings and with actions that we can't imagine. But I think as as a normal citizen, you want to avoid that. All right. Wow. It's going to be a busy time in the courts. <laughs> it is for sure. Whatever you think of the ultimate ruling, it's better when we can work things out without the final authoritative, unanswerable say of the Supreme Court of the United States. And they know that. Well, thank there you, you Terry, for coming. You bet. Thanks. Right. Speaking of the courts, one of the biggest other issues out there is whether or not Donald Trump is profiting on his presidency. And that they use a word, it's called emoluments. And there's a few court cases going on that uh, are exploring whether or not he's profiteering while in the White House. So we have Catherine Falters here who cover, covers basically the White House, Capitol Hill, and everything else in Washington. So <laughs> Catherine, can you give us an update on what's going on in this battle to prove if he and Jared Kushner are making money out of the White House. Yes. So the most high stakes lawsuit uh, right now, as it relates to emoluments, are uh, the D.C. and Maryland attorneys generals. Well, they've sued Trump in federal court and they're accusing him of violating the emoluments clause. Now, what is the emoluments clause? It's a constitutional clause that prohibits elected officials from doing uh, business with foreign governments. Now, of course, the Trump Hotel in Washington, D.C., as, as you guys know well, is at the center of this high stakes 
Lake's lawsuit, and the hotel, it's seen its fair share of foreign officials, uh, just to name a few. Officials from Bahrain, Azerbaijan, Nigeria, South Korea, they've all uh, been spotted there. So the federal judge in this case uh, said this case can advance. It's advanced to the evidence-gathering stage, but now it's on appeal uh, with the U.S. Court of Appeals. So the president's uh, attorneys, they've argued uh, that this claim, they say that the AGs don't have authority to sue the president in his official capacity because of the office uh, he holds. The president's attorneys are saying he's basically immune to this. He's immune to the matter because he's, quote, unique. And Catherine, one of the things that, you know, we, we've learned, I mean, you've been working on this longer than, mm-hmm. than anybody. Um, D.C. Attorney General Carl Racine, he mm-hmm. has been leading this charge. He's been focusing on the hotel. He's saying that it's not even uh, just the people that are showing up there. It's the fact that, that some countries, some dignitaries yeah. are hosting events at the president's right. hotel. And we just saw the financial disclosures. He made $40 million at that hotel last year. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable. The amount of events that they hold there is is pretty extreme. There's an event there, you know, maybe once a month, right, um, with these foreign governments. But I think the outcome, John, of this case, just because uh, there hasn't been one of these before, it's important to point out uh, that it will depend largely uh, on how we define uh, the term emolument. It's open for debate because the emolument cases are extremely rare. Not one of them um, has ever gone to trial in the United States. So, of course, the president's legal team, well, they've argued that Um, This should be more narrowly tailored, the interpretation of the clause. Uh, The lawyers for Trump say that payments by foreign dignitaries, we talk about these events at the hotel, they say that these payments uh, to the Trump Hotel shouldn't be considered emoluments because as these events that we're talking about, the lawyers would say that they don't relate to the president's work as being president. Catherine Falders, thank you. Thanks, guys. We're going to take a quick break. Coming up next in the investigation, we're going to head up to Donald Trump's former home in New York and all the investigations happening there. Stay with us. Welcome back to the investigation. I'm John Santucci, along with our senior executive producer, Chris Velasto. We're going to head up to New York State now with uh, all of the cases plaguing President Trump. So the Southern District, New York, uh, got into the investigations by first looking into Michael Cohen, the president's longtime uh, personal attorney and fixer. He's in jail now, but SDNY, they are still working hard. Let's bring in ABC's Matt Mosk. And Matt, uh, you know, we've been working together on this, the growing storyline of uh, January 20th, 2017, the president's inaugural. There are a number of foreign officials, foreign, I guess you would call them business tycoons, some of them with Russia ties. And we know that they were interviewed. We know several of them who were interviewed during the Mueller investigation, whose names don't appear in the Mueller report. And so that is sort of the first in a series of clues that leads us to believe the um, Southern District of New York is taking a closer look at the way foreign money rolled into the inaugural accounts. And what was that for? Is it to get access? What what would be the per- people are giving money so they get a seat at the table, right? Well, the one case that we do know about involves a fellow named Sam Patton, who was uh, an, an attorney and a sort of middleman who bought tickets in his own name 
and then gave them to a Russian businessman to attend the inaugural event. So some of them did want to be there. They wanted their pictures taken with the president at at events. But uh, there was actually quite a lot more money involved, and we don't know what the totals are, but we do know through subpoenas that the... uh, that the U.S. Attorney's Office wants to take a look at that. And Matt, they were also looking at um, some, not just the inaugural celebration itself, um, but two of these VIP dinners that happened, one being the candlelight dinner at Union Station. That was a bigger one. Um, but this more intimate affair, uh, the chairman's dinner, which was hosted um, by the president's longtime friend and the head of the inaugural, Tom Barrick, um, this one was far more intimate, um, uh, very uh, select group people that were there, and just a lot of different players came into this dinner that the Southern District's looking into. Well, one of the things that you know that the prosecutors have in their pocket, or we can assume that they do, is that Michael Cohen was very involved in a lot of these arrangements. Um, if Michael Cohen is cooperating to the degree that he has said publicly that he is, there is clearly a roadmap laid out for the feds as to what was going on with uh, dinners and events like the one you're talking about. Yeah, but what, what, what's illegal about that, Matt? Well, number one, you cannot have foreign contributions coming into an American political um, committee or into an event like this. And and I think the bigger question would be if there are large dollar figures involved, what was the motivation for those foreign nationals to give that money? Uh, Keeping in mind that uh, Russia, just to name one country, is under the thumb of American sanctions and wants very badly for those to be lifted. Some of the people have actually been personally uh, sanctioned by the Treasury Department. So th- the stakes are very high for a lot of these characters. Um, why they would want to be there showing fealty to the newly elected president uh yeah, I think it's a question that they want to explore. And Matt, sticking with the Southern District, New York, but switching gears, the other um, area they have been looking into for some time is the president's company, the Trump Organization. We, we do know there was a limited uh, interview that they had um, with the president's longtime uh, chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg. Uh, that had to do with uh, uh, the campaign donations Michael Cohen uh, made in relation to the payments to Stormy Daniels. But they, they still have and close the door there. I mean, there does seem to be an ongoing interest into the company by the Southern District of New York. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, the Southern District of New York, the prosecutors, often known as the Sovereign District of New York, they sort of go their own route. In these circumstances, they really are like the shark under the surface. We we know that they're big and they're dangerous, but we don't know exactly what they're doing. And the Trump Organization, and John, you know this better than almost anybody, having covered them really from the beginning, they're not a typical corporate structure. They're not a typical American company. What that, I think, gives rise to, and this is, I, I, I think we've been told by sources, something that the, the prosecutors are looking at, is money sloshing around in the Trump organization, and where did it go? Was it being used for political purposes, for the president's uh, election campaign? Was it being used for, um, ta- you know, how were taxes being paid? There are just a whole host Uh, a sort of thicket of potential problems when you have money sort of rolling around were they being used for personal use by the Trump children or by Trump himself what how was the money divvied up and was it accounted for properly but but Matt playing on the other side what's the predicate for this I mean isn't it is 
isn't it a little bit unfair to Donald Trump to just have a prosecutor going with subpoena crazy through a company? Well, it's it's hard to ma- make an argument really on either side because there's so little that we know. But if you assume again, uh, similar to the questions with the inauguration, that Michael Cohen, being the president's personal attorney, provided any sort of roadmap of misconduct as part of his efforts to, you know, whittle time off of his own jail sentence, then the prosecutors may very well have a predicate in that roadmap. We just don't know. Okay, Matt, thanks. And now in our quest to dissect all the investigations that are occurring with Donald Trump from Washington to New York, we are joined now by Aaron Katursky, who basically knows uh, everything you want to know that goes on in New York uh, City and state and government and law and legal. So obviously, even this past weekend, there was a story about Deutsche Bank and suspicious transactions in The New York Times. That's one of the many investigations going on. Aaron, What's going on up here in New York? Uh, There are federal investigations that are centered here. There are state investigations centered here and across the river in New Jersey. And all of them together um, end up involving Deutsche Bank in in many ways because it was the only mainstream bank willing to lend Trump any any sizable amount of money. Uh, But they also involve things like his inauguration, his charitable foundation. And so you have the attorney general. Uh, here in New York, Letitia James, who ran on a platform of opposing Donald Trump, investigating him on multiple fronts, some of his tax choices back in the 1990s, uh, and and also uh, his charitable foundation, which uh, precedes uh, Letitia James, but is all but shut down because of that investigation. And all that's left is to distribute the assets. Are there statute of limitations on those investigations? On, on some there are, but not Really, because the the attorney general, especially in New York, has a broad authority to to look at suspicious transactions and and to place them into today's context. So, uh, there, there, it's more an excuse to delve into some of the president's finances uh, than it may necessarily be to uh, because they thought anything was wrong at the time. And some of this, quite frankly, is happening because of things other people have said. The the Department of Financial Services, which is sort of the tax regulator in in New York State and the banking regulator, they're taking a look at the insurance company used by the Trump organization, Aon, one of the biggest insurance brokers in the world, Uh, not because of any suspicion on Aon's part, but because Michael Cohen said that uh, under oath during his congressional testimony that Donald Trump used to lie to the insurance companies when he was arranging his policies. And Aaron, one of the things that's been interesting for me anyway watching this is that the way that uh, all the different investigative bodies have kind of worked together and you know if you look at someone like the Trump organization uh, financial officer uh, Alan Weisselberg, he first came into contact with law enforcement um, through the state AG's office, then ultimately went over to the feds, right? And that was all by design. The, the state had been looking into Donald Trump in various ways for years. Uh, and, and that includes not only the attorney general's office, but also the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, where Trump's headquarters, uh, of course, is uh, in, in the center of the city. They'd been looking at some um, property on Long Island connected to uh, his then campaign boss, uh, Paul Manafort. So all of this stuff had been under investigation. But once Robert Mueller was named special counsel, all of that took a back seat and all of it was basically handed over to to the feds. And that's how uh, Weisselberg ended up with a, a quasi immunity deal, uh, although 
that may not protect him from everything that the feds are currently investigating. And, and, and John, you know better than anybody, I mean, all of these people have been under the gun and under suspicion now for years. And dealing with mounting legal fees to, to go on top of that. Um, but let, let's just talk for a second, Aaron, if we can, about um, about the AG's probe um, and, and, and where it, it kind of is moving here. Because it, it does feel like that has been um, the one office, as you said, that's been going at them forever. I mean, Trump University with Schneiderman really happened during the campaign, but it's kept on going. But the big thing with the New York State AG is that um, it is pardon-proof. From Donald Trump, right, and and that's been one of the frustrations I think for 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 the president's camp is even if he is uh, to issue pardons to certain figures, uh, think Paul Manafort. There there has been a, a decided effort in the New York State Legislature to make sure that there could be charges brought locally. The very day that that you know Paul Manafort is done with the feds, what drops an indictment from the Manhattan District Attorney's Office? So Paul Manafort could be in the crosshairs. You know, for for years to come and Democrats in the New York state legislature uh, revised state law to try and make sure that extra protections over and above double jeopardy standards that apply everywhere um, were removed with Trump in mind. And they want to make sure that there is some pardon insurance in New York for uh, for figures associated with uh, with the president. Uh, the attorney general's office in particular is taking a look at. Uh, immigrants who work at uh, the Trump Golf Club in Westchester, north of New York City. They're taking a look at the foundation. That case is all but done. They've just been arguing over how to distribute the assets that remain. And any time the president takes an official action, uh, the attorney general's office is usually first in line trying to block it in court, whether that's uh, immigration or uh, asylum seekers, environmental policy, and, and none of that has stopped. Uh, is there, though, I, I, I talked to uh, Terry, or I think I talked to Matt Moss, too, isn't there, isn't it maybe a little bit unfair to Donald Trump that all these investigative bodies are whittling through every year of his tax returns in his life and without really a predicate of a crime? It's been a source of frustration for sure, and I think the the authorities would say that there has never been another president quite like Donald Trump who's had the entanglements business-wise that Donald Trump has had, and so they've never been in a, you know, what Bill Clinton do? He'd been a politician his whole life. Well, and we did investigate Whitewater. Whitewater and the whole bit. Uh, That said, um, the the, uh, excuse all along is that these investigators are piling on. So you had the state investigators passing to the feds and the feds pass it back. And now across the river in New Jersey, they're taking a look at inaugural spending, but only a money raised in New Jersey from like Woody Johnson, the owner of the Jets, who was named the ambassador to, to the UK. And is that going to amount to anything? Maybe, but in the end, it's just right. a way to and keep at it the all end, going. And at the end of the day, we seem to think that the president can't be indicted, right? So so now you're going to have people out there wondering, what the hell's going on? Mm. I mean, so we're going to spend all this money and do all this investigating, and maybe what do they do, indict him when he leaves office? I, the, I've been told that the, the notion that federal prosecutors, either in Manhattan or in Brooklyn, both of which have open cases involving the Trump inaugural and other matters, the notion that they're going to be standing... You know, when when the helicopter takes off with an indictment to to hand to Donald Trump at the end is is probably a bit far fetched. Uh, It's certainly possible, though, that that those in the Trump orbit 
get charged, maybe bit players or or more min- what we would think of as more minor figures, people that he probably doesn't think of as minor figures, but but different fundraisers or or different people who who were involved. But I think it, it's also um, th- these investigations serve that any president going forward now is not going to be able to escape this kind of scrutiny, especially if they ever had a business or anything where where you know finances could get crisscrossed. And who uh, you know the other person uh, obviously mentioned in a lot of these New York cases is Jared Kushner and his family's business, and he's not immune from any presidential protection or anything. Is it the attorney general's office that's investigating, like his six six Fifth Avenue and his deals there? Is that what is that the office doing the, it? The attorney general's office has looked at it. The feds have been looking at it, and their their main concern is the foreign sources of of money that came into to the Kushner companies, and whether any of that money was used for undue influence. But it's really hard to prove that money here was promised for one thing in exchange for something else and some of it is it just kind of looks sketchy when you see the portfolio that Jared Kushner's been given especially in the Middle East and to know where some of the source of of funding came from for his skyscraper in Fifth Avenue but uh, in the end you know the authorities have been looking for a long time and and no case has been brought hey Aaron before we let you go I'm just curious and I don't mean to stump you on this one um, but is there someone in New York that is sort of uh, playing the referee, calling the shots and all of this? Because if you think about the last month and a half in particular, two months really, as you mentioned, you know, Manafort's done with the feds, Manhattan DA goes at him. You see how wide the New York State AG is going. We saw uh, in the New York State legislature they passed a, a law that uh, would allow a congressional committee uh, to go and get tax returns for example, for Donald Trump. Um, is there one character, kind of like how we see Nancy Pelosi and the leadership in Congress, you know, orchestrating the committees that everybody plays nice with each other? Is there someone in New York trying to do that? I, I think the only person that had that that specific role, John, was Robert Mueller, because they all had these cases that they basically put up on the shelf and then gave all the boxes to Mueller to play with, and then Mueller gave them back. And so now they're they're able to go through and, and bring these cases, some of which, you know, predate Trump's candidacy even. But for the most part, um, they're all forced to, to work together. And I think it's it's notable there's an absence of, of referee. I guess when it comes to the feds, it's ultimately the uh, the attorney general's office that's going to decide whether these local prosecutor's offices in, in Manhattan or Brooklyn are going to be able to bring a federal case against any Trump figure or Trump-related entity. And uh, that may be the the president's best hope of avoiding any legal entanglement in the future. All right. Well, thank you, Aaron Katursky. Thank you, Chris. John? Thanks for joining us today. Please be sure to hit subscribe and leave us a rating. Thanks to our producers, Trevor Hastings and Emily Rachowski. And for my colleagues, John Santucci, Trish Turner, Terry Moran, Catherine Falders, and Matt Mosk, and, of course, Aaron Katursky, We're going to be taking Memorial Day weekend off, and we'll see you back here on June 4th for another episode. And in honor of that important holiday, we'd like to leave you with a clip from a three-hour Memorial Day special that you're hosting, Aaron. Mm. And what can you tell us about it? 
this is a, a, a called America Remembers, and it is meant to pay tribute to not only fallen service members, but the families that are left behind. And you'll hear stories of young widows, widowed much too soon, whose, whose husbands went off to war for the United States recently and, and did not come back. But you'll also hear uh, about one of our own, a former fighter pilot and an ABC News contributor named Rosemary Mariner, who helped us understand military affairs and investigate, in some cases, military affairs. So we thought it would be fitting for you to hear from our chief global affairs correspondent, Martha Raditz, telling uh, my colleague Daria Albinger about former fighter pilot and ABC News contributor Rosemary Mariner. Rosemary Mariner was a lot of things, a captain in the Navy, the military's first female tactical pilot, and a crusading advocate for equal rights in the service, paving the way for the first women to fly combat missions. Women are not in the military because um, there was this epiphany one day of equal rights. (laughs) Women are in the military because they were needed. She was a part of our family here at ABC as a military analyst. You tell them from the very beginning that we have to separate you because you can't get along with each other and then put them in the work environment. The place to learn to work together is not in the advanced schools or that work environment. It's at from day one in basic training. Mariner was also a wife, a mother, a teacher, and to ABC News Chief Global Affairs Correspondent Martha Raditz, a very good friend. There's really no woman I admire more than than Rosemary or who was more inspirational to me as both a friend and someone I worshipped professionally for what she did. The daughter of a military pilot growing up in the shadow of Naval Air Station Miramar, Flying was in Mariner's blood. Rosemary was obsessed with flying, and especially growing up in San Diego. She'd see all those military jets passing overhead. Uh, She got her pilot's license. I think their first flight was when she was 17. And she was washing airplanes to try to earn money to learn how to fly. And she was determined to keep flying and ended up in the military in the very first class of of Navy female aviators. And she became the first, the Navy's first female tactical jet pilot. But that wasn't enough for her. What it comes down to quite simply is Rosemary was not allowed to fly in combat, even though she was the first um, Navy female uh, tactical jet pilot. So she was training men to go into combat. So that, again, is what Rosemary thought, this is not equal because we are not taking equal risks. We are flying the airplanes in the same way. We're doing what they do, but we're not allowed to use those skills to fly combat missions. Not only did she pave the way for herself in this business, she helped a lot of female aviators. She wanted to make sure those young women did not have to go through what she went through. And here's what she did about it. She would say that men were worried because they didn't think women could fly. But later on, they were worried because they realized they could. Every time you look at this in objective fashion and you study the performance of both men and women, from the GAO to the Army Research Institute, the conclusion is that it was working very well and both the performance of men and women is enhanced. So it was a competition. Uh, she never wanted it to be a competition. She, was, she wanted equality. She, she often said, look, I'm not fighting for women's rights. I'm fighting for equality. I love what she said when she was asked if women were physically able to be combat pilots. And she said, what did she say, a machine gun? 
is the great equalizer. <laughs> I love right. that. I think she said. I think she said something. A machine gun on an airplane is a great equalizer. And and again, there's no more. There is no more macho profession than being a fighter pilot. Mariner beat a lot of things, but cancer was one opponent she couldn't overcome. She died earlier this year at the age of 65, but she broke ground even at her funeral. Not just because it was a day to remember Rosemary and think of her, but to have the first all-female Navy flyover at her funeral, doing the missing man, or in this case, missing woman formation. Rosemary Mariner was an original. My service, the Navy, has a history of disagreeing with the party line. And she will be missed. 